All right, anyone here in this room uh, into music? Let me see your hands if you are into music. Yeah. Uh, now, there's different ways to be into music, isn't there? Uh, there's some people in here who, who play an instrument and who sing and who do that sort of thing. Others that have massive uh, collections. Uh, some people who know, you know, who played what on, on, a, on an album from 1978 and who produced it and who mixed it uh, and that sort of a thing. Um, how many of you, um, how many of you cared about what song was played on the car ride to church today? Let me see your hands if you're that person. Did you care what was played? No? Wow. How come you didn't all end up in my family? Here's our family. We have eight DJs in our family. Every time we go anywhere, the only person who doesn't care what we're listening to, actually she does, but she just puts up with it, is mom. Uh, the other day, Kaya, our two-year-old, is requesting Owl City. And I'm just going, what, what's happening here? We have all these different people who always want to ask what's going on. Uh, music has this way of, of emotionally affecting us. Um, think about this. If you bash someone's music, it's almost like you're bashing them. You ever catch that? If you see two people who are disagreeing about a musical style or who's the best, I mean, it gets really heated sometimes. I was the roommate of a guy named Jay. Jay was a, uh, a really, really old guy. I think he was 28. And, uh, and I was rooming with this ancient person who was 28 years old. And uh, he was from India. And he was going to go back and plant churches in India. And part of my education was in a classroom. And part of my education was living with Jay. It was awesome. It was really, really cool to just see a Christian and talk to a Christian from a different culture. And, um, and I led chapel uh, worship once in a while at the college and this and that. And after one particular time, he, he pulls me aside and we're in the room at night, you know, and he said, um, he said, you know, Davis, uh, it's great that you lead worship and, you know, neat that you play that little guitar thing and sing and whatnot. But if you really want to move people to worship God, you need to learn to play one of these babies. And he pulls out onto this desk, this foreign looking contraption, looked like a suitcase, and he unsnaps it and out comes you guessed it, the accordion. <laughs> now, um, I didn't have one on my guitar case, but a friend of mine had one on his guitar case that says, play an accordion, go to jail. That was my opinion of accordions at the time. And, uh, and, and, and I said, well, Jay, would you, would you play that for me? So Jay pulls it out, straps it on. And I kid you not, we had a little worship service right there in the dorm room. As he played, I have decided to follow Jesus on the accordion. I'll tell you what, I was moved to tears. I was moved to tears to watch him worship in his context. You know what we decided? We decided like a hundred other things, food and taste and all kinds of things, to just allow for him to have his taste and me to have my taste. I, to this day, am not moved by the accordion the same way that Jay is, but I'll never forget that day. Uh, music has this way of moving us, and I love, love music. Now, the other thing I love to do is watch movies. As a child, I was deprived of watching tons of movies and TV. At the time, frustrated by it, looking back on it, thankful for it. Uh, kids, uh, here's how we watched movies when I was a kid at home, okay? Uh, the TV show or movie started when it started. And if you were ready, then you got to watch the first part. If you weren't ready, like you're still brushing your teeth, still getting jammies on, still coming downstairs, whatever, guess what? You missed the first part. You couldn't pause. You couldn't go backwards. You couldn't go get popcorn. You sat down and watched the movie when they told you to. I never have figured out who they are, but they decided, 
right? When it was. That's how I watched movies. Now, on the rare occasion that I did get to watch a movie, it was a fantastic thing. I would get to sit down and, and, you know, and stare at this massive TV uh, that had color, even, sometimes, if you held the ears right, right? And, um, and we would all gather around and, and watch, and watch a, uh, a, a movie of some sort. Now, music uh, and movies are both really good, um, but once in a while, as I was watching a movie, you could kind of feel it coming on. It was sneaking up on you, and you would kind of get this sinking feeling. You're like, no. No, no don't, ru- don't ruin my movie. All of a sudden, you would hear music swell, and it wasn't soundtrack music. You got the sense someone on screen was about to start singing. It was a musical. So you take music and you take movies and you mush them together and it just destroyed the whole thing. I'm like, don't contaminate my, my movie. I love movies, but don't make it a musical. I love music, but don't put it over a movie. Um, that's just a giant jumbled mess and it makes me very sad. Now, long before high school musical made it cool to watch musicals as a young person, the only people that I could get a sense that actually enjoyed these creations was old people. That's, that's who liked these things. And, um, and in a true sign that I must be getting older, um, here's the reality. And the fact that I've married my wife and I'm beginning to take on her taste, I'm starting to enjoy musicals. Okay? It's just happening. I'm getting old right before your eyes. I enjoy musicals now, okay? And, um, and, and here's, what's, here's what's really cool about it. I actually found out that it's biblical. So I'm actually becoming more Christ-like as I enjoy. I, I was in the dark before. I didn't know, I didn't know it was biblical. Uh, Judges chapter four. That's where we're at. Turn to Judges chapter four. And we are going to actually look at a musical in the Bible. While you're turning to Judges, it's, it's Joshua Judges Ruth. That's part of how you remember that. Joshua shouldn't do that, but he evidently does. Uh, find it, Josh, uh, Judges chapter 4. We're in the period of history where God is using various judges to deliver Israel. We looked at Gideon a few weeks ago. Remember this washing mas- uh, machine cycle that Israel had been on, right? They would, um, they would obey God and all things would go really well and they'd have victory. And then there was protection and bless- uh, blessing. Then they would what? Forget God. Sometimes they would start worshiping other gods. Then they would be outright disobedient. And then there'd come the spanking, right? Judgment. And then they would have to be delivered back out of it again. And so we're in this cycle right now in this period of history. And if you think about it, it's a lot like your cycle probably. This is the same cycle that we're in as churches, as Christians, as nations today. We have this same sort of cycle going and we still need God to be delivering us. Now here's one of the um, kind of bridging ideas that I have to give to you. When I say the word judges, here's what I don't want you to think about. I don't want you to think about long black robes. I don't want you to think about angry British people. I want you to think about something totally different, okay? When I hear the word judge, these are the ideas. These are the images that kind of come to my mind, and it's not any of these, really. There's a couple of tie-ins, but we'll get to those, okay? So when I talk judges, we're really talking about people of great courage, and usually they have some sort of military deliverance in mind, okay? So instead of these people, think about, think about these biblical characters. 
Ehud is the left-handed assassin. He's in the book of Judges. Pretty cool story. Read about it. Samson, the really strong guy who routed an enemy army with a donkey bone and his bare hands. Uh, Othniel, who once conquered an entire city um, for love. And then you have Samuel, who you, you've, he's got two books after him. So there's a lot written about him. These would make great trading cards. They would make astounding movies. These are really powerful, dramatic stories. Uh, they're, not, they're not what we kind of tend to think of when we think judges. We already looked in depth at Gideon a few weeks ago. He was the fearful judge who God empowered to deliver Israel. And we're going to look at another judge today by the name of Deborah. Now, Deborah was invited and strengthened by God to deliver his people. The name Deborah means be. If you're filling out notes today, you can write that down. Kids, you can follow along with all the notes today. They are simple enough and straightforward enough. You're going to get it. Uh, look at the screen for a minute. When you think of a B, what do you think of? Don't give me a church answer. Give me just the B answer. What do, what do you think of? Buzzing? What else? Honey. Honey. Yes. What else? Stinging. There it is. There's the, the hat trick. Anything else is superfluous, right? That's the top three. Uh, I didn't account for buzzing, but thank you, Mrs. Adam, for bringing that one up. Um, but think about Deborah as the bee, okay? Here's what she did. She stung an enemy, and she provided something sweet for her people. It's kind of a fitting name. Her, name's, her name means bee, and that's what she does. Uh, Judges chapter 4, I'm going to read verses 1 to 9. And uh, this morning, just because it reads a little bit easier, uh, I'm going to read from a, a translation of the Bible called The Message. And it says this, starting in Judges chapter 4, verse 1. The people of Israel kept right on doing evil in God's sight. There's that cycle. When he had died, God sold them off to Jabin, king of Canaan, who ruled from Hazor. Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagoyim. You know, when you say that, you're like, where do you live? I live in HH. I think that's what they, he probably used to do because he didn't want to say that mouthful every time. Uh, Sisera was the commander of his army. The people of Israel cried out to God because he had cruelly oppressed them with his 900 iron chariots for 20 years. Once again, iron chariot is like the top-of-the-line military advancement at that time. So don't think old school. Think brand new, cutting edge. That was really, really powerful stuff. Verse 4. Deborah was a prophet, the wife of Lipideth. She was judge over Israel at that time. She held court under Deborah's palm between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. The people of Israel went to her in matters of justice. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, It has become clear that God, the God of Israel, commands you, Go to Mount Tabor and prepare for battle. Take ten companies of soldiers from Naphtali and Zebulun. I'll take care of getting Sisera, the leader of Jabin's army, to the Kishon River with all his chariots and troops, and I'll make sure you win the battle. Barak said, if you go with me, I'll go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. She said, of course I'll go with you. But understand, with an attitude like that, there will be no glory in it for you. God will use a woman's hand to take care of Sisera. Deborah got ready and went with Barak to Kadesh. Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali together at Kadesh. Ten companies of men followed him, and Deborah was with him. Now, what we see in Judges chapter 4 
is kind of the original inspiration for Xena the Princess Warrior. Some of you old school people remember that show. Um, this was a woman who, who did some, some really, really incredible things. Uh, normally, God uses men in this role of prophet and deliverer. But in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, on occasion, God uses a woman. And this is one of those times. I want to talk for just a moment about Barak, because he is kind of intricately tied to Deborah. They're almost always mentioned together because their stories are so interwoven. He's a well-known military leader. He's evidently the, the top general at the time. He's under the command of Deborah. We know this because she sends for him. You don't send for someone and they come unless you're the person in charge. So Deborah's the one in charge of things, but she calls for Barak. Now, he's given very clear marching orders. The marching orders are this. Go, attack, but he doesn't. The victory was promised to him, but he stalls. Now, we don't really know the cause of why he did that, um, but we, we know that he puts conditions on the mission that God gave to him. God said, go through the prophetess Deborah, and he says, I'll go if, and he kind of puts this condition on God. Now, we're not going to spend very much time on him, but I wanted to bring him up because I, I wonder if you find any of yourself in, in Barak. Here he is given a clear mission from God. Go. He's given a clear communication. You will have victory. And he says this, I'll go if. You see yourself in there? He's a complex person, isn't he? Did Barak have faith, yes or no? Yes, absolutely. In fact, if you read in Hebrews um, chapter 11, the great hall of faith, verse 32, it says, For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David. He's listed with some pretty big guys who had great faith. So did he have faith? Absolutely. But it's not as strong as it could have been. I think about me as a Christian. And the fact that I, as a Christian, have a clear mission. Go, glorify God by making disciples of all the nations. And sometimes I've said, well, I'll go if, and there's kind of this hesitation. All right. Well, the details of the battle, we're not going to get there uh, into them much because they're not really the focus of this morning, but they are there for you to read. Uh, instead, kind of like some of you who may have been watching a movie at some point and you were kind of lured in by someone to watch this flick and you didn't catch that it was a musical, all of a sudden there's all this, you know, action going on, chases, uh, drama, and, and all these things, and then all of a sudden, boom, it's a musical. The music kicks in and you're like right here in the middle of the Bible, it's a musical. Deborah, she's infused by the Spirit of God to do great things. After Moses, catch this, only Samuel held the three offices that Deborah held. She was the prophet, she was the judge, and she was the military leader. And instead of just writing about the history, she sings the history. In fact, she sings the history as a duet with Barak. If you're writing down what her invitation is this morning, you can write down that she was invited to sing. That's her invitation by God. We've been looking this series, Step of Yes, about all these different ways that God is, is inviting people to partner with him to accomplish his great will. Look at Judges chapter 5. Flip over to verse 5, I mean chapter 5, verse 12. 
This is within the middle of the song, and it says this, Wake up, Deborah. Wake up. Wake up. Wake up. She's a deep sleeper. And sing a song. That's part of the song that she's singing. She's saying that God woke her up to this and roused her to not only sing a song, but also aroused her to oppose the Canaanites. Remember who it was that sent for Barak, the military guy? It was her. So God God roused this in her, kind of woke her to, to this. Now think about this. Victory songs when troops come home is not a distinctly Christian idea, right? When troops go out to battle and they come back and they've been victorious, they sing about it. That's a normal Christian thing. Here's what's unique to Christianity. Songs that give total praise and glory to God and say, God, it's your victory. You're the one who's awesome and mighty. That's what's distinctly Christian about it. If you want to read a couple of others, read Exodus 15 and then write down Psalm 68. Those are two other examples in the scriptures. There's lots of others, but those are a couple uh, just to kind of read about and, um, and see how this victory is used as an occasion to worship God. Uh, I've been listening to music a little bit differently since preparing for this message, just kind of listening for some different themes. And actually, there is a lot of victory theme uh, and praise that goes on in music. Um, if you think about hip-hop, for instance, uh, usually hip-hoppers extol the mad skills of the rapper, and that's skills with a Z at the end, okay? That's how you have to spell it. Uh, but usually they're rapping about how they can rock the mic better than everyone else. That's like extolling their own glory, right? If you're kind of a crooner, then you've got this, like, love conquest thing going on, and you're singing about the, the victory of that. If you're into pleasure or some kind of, uh, you know, toxin from this earth that's been grown, then you sing about that, and you sing about the praise and glory of that. And then you've got, we are the champions. You know, you've got something like that going on. That's just people singing what? We are the champions. Point the spotlight right here. So music has this way of really stirring up emotion. And what it's doing, think about it, it's pointing the spotlight somewhere. It's, it's, it's extolling the glories of something or someone. Listen to music this week. Listen to the music that you normally listen to with that in mind. Note the priority of musical praise. Check out verse 1 of, of chapter 5. It says, so there's this victory that goes on in chapter 4. You can read all about it. That's the battle scene. That's the deliverance from these Canaanites that for 20 years, uh, you can read about it in the song, but life has been oppressive. It's been terrible under the Canaanites. How did they get under the Canaanites in the first place? Did you catch it in the first few verses we read? God sold them into that. God is using this to discipline them. Remember the washing machine cycle? It's God's sovereignty that's allowed them to be oppressed for 20 years. They finally humble themselves, cry out to God, and he says, okay, enough is enough. 900 chariots, forget about it. We're going to use uh, all kinds of stuff, and you're going to be delivered. So that's chapter 4. He delivers them. He delivers his people. And then in verse 1, chapter 5, it says this, Then Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day sang the following. On that day, the priority of musical worship in God. God has created our souls to sing. And here it is, the community of God. On the very day that they have victory, they sing about it and they praise God. Some of you go, I don't 
like singing. I come late to church because I don't like to sing. Singing is actually a, a huge part of the people of God of why we get together and do that. Now, uh, some songs um, that you think will stand the test of time don't, and others you're kind of surprised. Like in the day, it wasn't hugely popular, but it really stands the test of time. Oftentimes, you can tell by the title of the song whether it's going to stand the test of time. Let me give you an example. Uh, when I was a youth pastor, there were a lot of kids that were into these three brothers, and there was a song that was called Mbop. Okay? It was spelled M-M-M-B-O-P. Okay? Now, that song, everyone that summer thought, this is a keeper. This one's going to be around until my grandkids are here. Okay? Uh, those of you under uh, 15, how many have heard of, of Mbop? Anyone hear of that? The band Hanson? No? Okay. Yeah. So, so not many of you heard of it, right? Now, here's kind of a more modern example of it. Oh, it's like baby. So that one's called Baby. Is that the, is that the title of it? Come on, you believers out there. Is it, is it called baby? Is that right? Baby, baby. Baby, baby. Okay. So let me just, here's a tip. Okay. If you're a, if you're kind of thinking like, is this going to make it? If it's mbop, okay, that didn't make it. If it's baby, baby, decent chance it's just not going to be that big of a deal when your grandkids are running around. Okay. So sometimes if you're writing today, if you're writing music, be really careful what you title it. Okay. Uh, because you're, you might actually title it right out of existence if you're not careful. So. Each generation has this, uh, this, this, you know, this song that kind of seems like it's going to be there, and then their one-hit wonder kind of goes away. Uh, Deborah's song, catch this, Deborah's song is studied by people around the world as incredible art. It's actually brought up in colleges to, to learn about ancient poetry, and it's studied and talked about in all of this. This was written after a, after a, a battle, just in praise to God. But catch this, just like the Bible, some people study the Bible and say this Bible is an incredible collection of words. Some of the way it's, it's there uh, is just incredible. But to kind of study the Bible as a museum piece or to take Deborah's song, as it's referred to, and just study it from a distance as kind of a museum piece, as great art, to kind of sit there, ponder it, take a couple notes, and then move on to the next, is to totally miss it. It's to totally miss what it's talking about. So just like we take the Bible, we want to read it with eyes of faith. We want to read it and say, Lord, speak to me today. I want to challenge you and encourage you. We're not going to take the time to go through the song. It's a fairly long song uh, in detail today. But I want you to go back and read it and, and um, immerse yourself in it so that it doesn't lose its impact. All right, so we have God that spoke to Deborah. Now, attack. Barak, who comes up, kind of gives pause. Uh, God providing the victory. Read about it. He uses nature as kind of an assist in that against the chariots, which is pretty cool. And then Deborah and uh, and Barak go all, you know, Sonny and Cher, and they sit down and they start doing a duet about it. Now, Sonny, Sonny and Cher, I missed some of you, so let me scroll through a couple, just like your taste, your era. Uh, John Travolta, Olivia Newton-John, uh, Kenny Rogers, Dolly Parton, or as they do it now, it would be like J-Lo featuring Pitbull. That's how they do duets now. That's the cool way to say duets, okay? So kind of in an effort to reach out to the youth, we'll just, uh, oh, look, there's an arrow. Uh, there's, uh, there's Deborah. Um, we'll just do it this way. So this is, this is how they say duets now, is they say so-and-so featuring so-and-so. And that kind of draws you in, just means duet, okay, for the old people who don't understand that. So, this is Deborah featuring Barak. We're going to take a quick look at the song so you can kind of get it. We're about to sing a song called Made to Worship. 
Now, not all of you were made to sing well. And people sometimes remind you of that. Please stop singing as loud. You know, or just stop altogether. It might be better. Um, but the reality is every person, whether you enjoy singing or good at singing, find yourself humming along or not, everyone was made to worship, and you see how universal music is, and you can begin to see what a culture values and what they extol and what they glorify just by looking at their music. The truth is, we will sing to our own glory, we will sing to God's glory, or we will worship those who do the singing. There's a ton of worship going on with music. Here's what's noteworthy. If you read the song that Deborah wrote and then try to imagine everyone rushing up to her and wanting her autograph, telling Deborah how great she is, saying, Deborah, we need to package you. We need to market you. We need to get you out there. You are awesome. If you've read Deborah's song, here's what you'd know. That would never, ever happen. You know why? The song is all about God. It's all about how great God is. It's extolling how great He is. It makes everyone want to say, man, if I could just get God's autograph, if I could just get close to God. That's how worship leaders around the world should be. They should kind of fade into the distance, and people leave saying, wow, what an awesome God we serve. My prayer is that that's what you would say of me. You wouldn't walk away and say, wow, Dave can sure turn a phrase. But rather we just say, wow, what an awesome God that we serve. How different that is. I was talking with a friend uh, this week, and he was telling me about looking for a church and, and some of this and that. And he says, you know, I have five things that, um, five things that I, I want in a church. And if all five aren't there, I'm not coming to that church to, to worship and bring my family and really get plugged in. You know what one of the five was? God-centered worship. It's a good one. It's a good one. One that just says, man, it makes much of our great God. Think about how different that is in our day and age. Uh, Now, one of the American Idol contestants, I know some of you are way, way too cool to ever listen to an American Idol artist, Um, but one of them came along a couple of years ago, and he was a Christian. He was very open about his faith. And on his CD, once he kind of put his CD out there, he was a writer as well, and he wrote this song to be very explicit about what he wanted done with his musical career. And in one of the songs, it's a, it's a song um, called Let Them See You. It says this, Who am I without your grace? Another smile, another face. Another breath, a grain of sand passing quickly through your hand. I'd give my life an offering. Take it all. Take everything. The chorus goes on to say this, Let them see you in me. Let them hear you when I speak. Let them feel you when I sing. Let them see you in me. He names the name of Jesus in his CD, which I love. The title of his, of his, uh, of his album is called A Messenger. Now, that's a different path than most people who they say, you've got it. I don't even know what it is, but you've got it. You've got the look. You've got the style. You've got the sound. We're going to market you to death. We're going to make a lot of money off you. Now, here's who you have to be. It's got to be all about you. In sound bites and in interviews, you've got to talk about yourself and that sort of thing. Different, different kind of a, of a vibe going on. Uh, in Deborah's day, there was absolutely no need for American Idol because if the president and the top general started singing, 
YouTube sensation. That would get a lot of coverage, right? I mean, you just, that would, that would make uh, news. Huge exposure. All right, so we're not going to go into detail. You don't need to take notes on this necessarily. You can if you'd like. I would encourage you to just go and read the song for yourself. Let God's word speak to you. But here's her song in a nutshell. In, in verses 1 to 2, we have the joy and blessing of being a willing instrument of God. She talks about both leaders and followers, how they're both needed. Think about a, an orchestra director with no orchestra, right? He's just swatting at flies. That's all it is. You need both. And she kind of extols that in a couple different places in this song. If you were taking notes, the big idea is praise God for his deliverance. It's praise for his victory. That's whose victory it is. They saw that really clearly, and they made a point of talking about it. All right, verses 3 to 5, remembering God's past provision. Verses 6 to 8, recalling life under the oppression. Hey, here's how bad it was. And here's what we're delivered from. Verse 9 is this one little refrain. She comes back to this idea of praise for the leaders who lead and praise for the followers whose hearts were with me in this. And then verses 10 through 27, kind of a giant chunk of the song, is a call to recount this great victory and how it happened. Once again, imagine in history class, if your history teacher is like, here's the book, here's the CD, you know, and you can kind of listen to it no matter how you kind of get information. And bookworms are like, sweet. And other people are like, cool class, you know, coolest class ever. I just listen to music and I, I get the info. Uh, verses 28 to 30 is the stinks to be you part of the song. Um, that's basically where she's kind of looking on the losing side of it. And, uh, and maybe you just think, you know, we're really all choosing sides. We're all on a side in this life. Those who are denying Christ's claims are choosing by default not to be with him. Those who are doing what Jonathan did, what Trent did, and what Tim Nichols is going to do next service are saying, I'm on Jesus's side. That's what they're publicly declaring when they get baptized. I want you to shift for a moment in your thoughts and think about Deborah, who was a prophet, who was a priest, and who was a deliverer. I told you at the start of this series, we were going to see types of Christ found in the Old Testament. Different types of Christ going on. Deborah is a type of Christ. Jesus fulfills all these offices to us. And it gives us huge reason to sing. You and I... If we've trusted in Christ by faith, you and I have been delivered from an even greater enemy than the Canaanites for 20 years. Our life under sin's reign is far more terrible than anything that the Canaanites were throwing at the Israelites. Our victory in Christ is complete and changes everything, and it really does stink to be on the wrong side. Proverbs chapter 14 says this, There is a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. There's people who are trucking along and seemingly having a victory right now. There's people who will sneer at you as a Christian. They'll sneer at Trent for standing up here and giving testimony. They'll sneer at a guy like Jonathan who says, I'm going to make Christ my number one goal. There's a way that seems right, but in the, way, uh, in the end the Bible says it leads to death. In conclusion, I ask you this. What has God awakened you to? If you're a Christian this morning, and by being a Christian, what I mean by that is that you have humbled yourself, you've repented of your sin, and you've put on Christ like you would put on a shirt today. And you've trusted in Him. 
You're not trying to earn your way to God by your righteousness. You're leaning completely on his righteousness. You bring nothing to the equation. You take his everything. That's what it means to be a Christian. If you're a Christian this morning, then your mandate is clear. I hope God has awakened you to it or reawakened you to it. The mandate is go. It's very, very similar to Barak. Go right now. Love the obedience of Trent, Jonathan, Tim saying, and I heard about baptism. God stirred something in me. I'm obeying right now. That's the mandate. Go and make disciples. So in how you talk, maybe you'd write a rap. Maybe you draw. Maybe you sing. Maybe you dance. Maybe you work. Maybe you design things. Do all to the glory of God. Figure out a way to communicate this good news of the gospel in all that you do. Maybe this morning you're undecided. By undecided, I simply mean you may have heard about this a lot. Maybe this is the first time you've ever heard it kind of laid out plainly. Maybe you've really been actively wrestling with this and and trying to answer some of the bigger questions of life. Why are we here? How did we get here? What happens when we die? What am I supposed to be about? Maybe none of that has been on your radar at all, but God's used this morning to kind of spark something in you to wake up. If you're undecided... Here's Jesus' message to you. It's the word come. If you're a Christian, it's go. If you're undecided, the word is come. Jesus puts out this invitation in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me goes on to say, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. You know what he's saying, undecideds? Get over here. Come get in on this. This God that you thought was angry and mad at you is actually extending an invitation to you. Come and dine with me. Come get in on this victory. It's not too late. Today's a day of salvation. Stop trying to live your life on your own. I want to invite the band up right now. And in just a moment, we're going to sing a song that I hope impacts us in a little different way this morning, just as we've talked about music and thinking about it. Shortly after uh, the second service, by the way, I'd invite you to come back for the, the welcome lunch we have going on after second service, a 4th of July themed. It's in the back. It's going to be a fun party. Come join us. Um, shortly after that begins, uh, both Ben and I are going to leave for a, a funeral service. There's a guy in his mid-20s that, um, that passed away uh, about two weeks ago, and um, we're going to go celebrate his life and, and know that he's in the arms of his Savior. You see, at one point in Josiah's life, he was awakened to the reality that he needed a Savior for his sin. This is a guy that I spent some time with. He and I went to Urbana Missions Conference, which is where about 20,000 students from around the world are gathered in one place to be trained on how to share the gospel and go into all the nations. Josiah was a part of that. None of us had any idea, any inkling, that his life would end so, so, so soon. Here's the wake-up call. None of us in here today know the time that it's appointed for us to die. We think we have all kinds of time, and yet 
we may not. One of my jobs in this position, hear this, is to prepare you for your day of death. Dave, that sounds really morbid and not very uplifting. I get it. I know that sounds that way. But I, I would be lying to you. I would be a terrible friend to you. In fact, I'd be an enemy if I didn't point you to that day and say, are you ready to meet the judge face to face? With all of your sin, with all that you are, are you prepared for that day? I long that if I'm around to get to do your funeral, I long for it to be not a day filled with kind of platitudes where people just say nice things, but to genuinely put our hope where our hope is, to say they are in a better place. They're having a great day right now. We're having a hard one right now. This is going to be tough. Those of us left. That's what I want to prepare you for. And here's the reality. I want you this morning, no matter who you are, to take stock of where you are at with Christ because it's easy to be deceived. I close with this passage. Revelation chapter 3. This is Jesus talking to different churches in different regions. Listen to what he says about the sleepy people of Sardis. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up! And strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Let me pray. God, I pray for myself. I pray for us as a church right now that we wouldn't have a reputation of being alive. That we wouldn't just have some of the external marks of seemingly being awake to the life that we have in you through Christ. But God, that that would be the complete earmark of us is that we are completely awake, totally alive, to you in all that we do and say. I pray that our worship wouldn't fall into just ritual where we come and with zero passion mouth a few words on a Sunday. I pray that as we give of ourselves and our gifts and our offering, that it will be done as an act of sheer gratitude and joy and worship and energy. God, wake us up. Help us not to slumber through this life. Use this song right now even to do that in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.